This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. We read from Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and especially this part, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children, unto the third and to the fourth generation. In our last lecture, we looked at the subject of sin. We saw the nature of sin, its rebellion against God. We saw the source of sin. Sin comes from the corrupt heart of man. We saw the origin of sin. The fall of the first man, Adam, in paradise. And we saw the effect of sin, the corruption of man's nature, his body, mind, heart, soul, and will. And we saw the extent of sin, total depravity, so that by nature man cannot do anything good, and is wholly inclined to all wickedness. That's the Christian doctrine of sin. Now man changed at the fall. He lost the image of God. He became corrupt. He became a sinner. But there's one who did not change. God did not change. Before the fall, God was holy and just. And after the fall, God remained holy and just. And the subject of the speech this evening is our sin and God's justice. We're looking at those two realities. We're sinners and God is just. And how do those two realities relate to one another? What do we mean when we say that God is just or God is righteous? Negatively, we mean that there is no corruption in him and that he is incorruptible. Here's Deuteronomy 32. Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. So God never deviates from the path of holiness, and all of his thoughts and words and deeds 
are in perfect harmony with his holiness. Positively, we mean that God adheres to this standard and that he is perfect. When in the Bible you read about justice or righteousness or that God is just or that God is righteous, you must always think of a standard. If you want to compare something and decide if something is just or unjust, you have to compare it to the standard. If, for example, you want to measure the quantity of a liquid, you must use the standard measurement of a liter or a milliliter. If you want to measure the length of something, you must use the standard measurement of a meter or a centimeter or a millimeter. And justice has a standard also. God is the standard. God is the standard. The standard is revealed in God's law. And so for our purposes, whatever measures up to the standard of God's law is righteous or just. And whatever deviates from that standard of God's law is unrighteous, unjust, twisted, or perverse. And the truth that God is just or that God is righteous means that he is in conformity with his own standard. You mustn't think that there's this justice out there and that God then has to conform himself to this abstract idea of justice. No, God is justice. God is the standard. God determines what is just, what is righteous, what is holy, what is true, and also what is sin. We do not determine that. That's, of course, really part of the fall. Which tree was Adam not allowed to eat from? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by eating from that tree, Adam was saying, I want to be like God. I want to determine for myself what is good and what is evil. And God said, by forbidding them to eat of that tree, no, I am God and I determine what's good and what's evil and you must submit to my standard. And when they didn't, they became sin or sinners. Now God is just or righteous as the judge. That's really where his righteousness is especially revealed. When God judges, he judges according to the standard of his law. And therefore, he is not an unjust judge. He cannot be corrupted. He cannot be bribed as some judges can be bribed. 
He does not treat people according to their nationality or their race or their social class. He treats them all the same according to the same standard of his law, whether they're rich or poor or European or Asian or American or male or female or young or old. They're all judged according to the same standard. He applies that standard of the law strictly to every case which he judges. And so Abraham can ask the question, which is really a rhetorical question, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18, verse 25. And the answer is, of course. Of course the judge of all the earth shall do right, because the judge of all the earth is the only true and living God who is righteous. Now what happens when the justice or the righteousness of God meets the injustice or the unrighteousness or the sin of man? You have the justice, the absolute justice of God, and you have the corruption of man. What happens when those two things, as it were, meet or encounter one another? And the answer is God's wrath. Wrath. Now that word wrath simply means anger. God is angry with mankind because of sin. He's angry as the judge. A judge is angry with a criminal because the judge upholds the law and the judge is angry when the law is broken. And we also have a sense of justice. If you hear of a man or you read in the newspaper of a man who steals the purse of an old lady or of a woman who murders her husband, or of a man who attacks a young lady in the street. Your sense of justice wells up inside of you, and you are angry. Your sense of justice demands that you are angry. There'd be something wrong with you if you were not angry at reading about such crimes. When Adam deliberately rebelled against God, God was angry. Of course. Of course he was angry. Adam disobeyed God. God's wrath burned against Adam. And God's wrath burns against all mankind because all mankind have sinned. The Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. He's angry because his justice has been offended. He's angry because his glory has been denied. He's angry because the perfect standard of his law has been violated. And what did God do in his anger? 
He killed Adam. Genesis 2.17 says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. God didn't mean if you eat that fruit it's poisonous and you'll die. God meant if you eat that fruit which is forbidden you'll be breaking my commandment and I'll kill you. That's what God meant by thou shalt surely die. Did God carry out that threat? Oh yes he did. God is true. God's threats are true. God inflicted death upon Adam. It's true, of course, that Adam didn't die immediately in that he didn't drop dead of a heart attack, as it were, in the garden on the same day. He lived for 930 years, but he really did die his body became subject to disease, corruption, and death. His whole nature became corrupted. And he became liable to God's eternal punishment in hell. And the reason that people die in this world is because God is angry with this world and God's curse is upon this world. God sent death into this world as a punishment for man's sin. God stripped Adam of the image of God. God said to Adam, as it were, you are no longer worthy to bear my image in which you were created. I am going to take it off you. I will take away from you my holiness and my righteousness and my knowledge. And I will give you over to the corruption which you so desire. And Adam, as we saw last time, became totally depraved. Listen to some passages from the Word of God. Colossians 2.13 You being dead in your sins. Colossians 1.21 and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. And Romans 8 verse 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And then sin brings eternal death upon mankind. At the end of a man's life, after he has lived in the world for many years in rebellion against God, God takes that man and tears him into pieces. His body is placed in the grave where it rots, decomposes, and his soul is ripped out of his body and cast into hell, which is a place of fire and torment, where he is punished forever under the wrath of God. Death is not something that just happens. We think, oh, people just die. That's natural and normal. 
It's not natural and normal that people die. People die because God is angry with the wicked every day. There was no death before sin. Sin brought death into the world. Listen to these passages from the word of God. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, verse 28, the words of Jesus. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Mark 9, 43 and 44. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments. Luke 16, 23. And then, and the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. That's God's wrath. He gives people over to sin. He punishes them with physical death and all the misery which leads up to physical death. And he casts them body and soul into the lake of fire on the last day. Now how does God's justice affect us? And how does God's wrath affect us? And how do you think you're going to fare before the judge who is righteous? God the judge. Imagine that this evening you are arrested. And imagine, for the sake of argument, that you're guilty of the crime for which you are arrested. Imagine there's a clear law in Ireland, which you have obviously broken. And now you stand before the judge. And the judge's calling is to determine your guilt and your punishment. What do you expect shall happen to you in that situation? What should happen to you in that situation? Or imagine, God forbid, that a man enters your home and he violently attacks and kills one of your family. And imagine that man is immediately arrested and stands before the judge. And imagine then that the judge says, and you're in the court to watch it, the judge says, I know that you are guilty but I am going to release you without punishment. How would you react 
if you were a witness in the courtroom. Would your sense of justice not be outraged at such injustice? Would you not demand justice for your family? Would you not call for the resignation of that judge? He's an, he's an unjust judge. He's not applying the standard of the law to the case before him. Now apply that to the spiritual realm. You and I, we have broken God's law. There's no one here this evening who can say, I have not broken God's law. You and I have broken all of God's commandments. If I were to go down the Ten Commandments and ask you about each of the Ten Commandments and explain to you the meaning of the Ten Commandments, you would say at the end, yes, I have broken all of the Ten Commandments. I have not glorified God as I ought. I have dishonored Him. What then must God's verdict be about you and about me? If God is just, what must his verdict be? It must be this. This person is guilty. He has broken all of my commandments. He stands before me as guilty. He deserves to be punished. And the punishment is everlasting punishment in hell. That must be the verdict that God gives from his judgment throne. Now, why must the punishment be eternal? Why can the punishment not be a few years or maybe a hundred years? Why must it go on forever and ever? Why will there never come a time when God would release the sinner from the punishment? Why would he not simply destroy him after he suffers a certain length of time. And the answer is because sin is a crime against God. Generally speaking, a crime's seriousness is determined by the dignity of the one against whom it is committed. A crime against a child is, or should be, more serious than a crime against a dog. A crime against the king is more serious than a crime against an ordinary citizen. And a crime against God is most serious because it is a crime against the infinite majesty of the God who made the heavens and the earth. It's a crime against the Holy One. It's a crime against the one before whom the angels veil their faces and cry, Holy, Holy, Holy. What punishment does such crime not deserve? Therefore, shall dust and ashes rise up in rebellion against God, and shall that person go unpunished? Does not such rebellion deserve severe, strict, everlasting 
terrible but just punishment of body and soul. Of course. So you stand before the judge. The judge who is God. The judge who knows everything that you have done. The judge who understands all of your secret motives and reads your mind and understands everything in your heart. And you're guilty. And so God's justice demands two things. God requires perfect obedience to all of his commandments. You think about Adam. Adam obeyed God perfectly. He kept the garden. He served God in love. But he broke one of God's commandments. He became guilty of everything. And having become guilty, God's justice then requires full punishment of all transgressions and transgressors. And God does not grade on a curve. He doesn't say, well, if you get most of my commandments, I'll let you off. If you obey perhaps 95% of my commandments, I'll forget the last 5%. No, God demands perfection. God cannot pretend that imperfection is perfection. Which leaves us, of course, with no escape of ourselves. We stand before God. We're guilty before him. We have not kept his commandments. We've broken his commandments. We've nothing we can offer to him. And so there's no escape. When the sinner is confronted with that truth of his own sin, he makes excuses. That's where he tries to run. He makes several excuses. For example, he'll say, well, God cannot require of me perfect obedience. I am a sinner. And therefore, God would be unreasonable to require of me perfect obedience. He needs to lower his standard now to accommodate my weakness. You can't expect me to give him perfect obedience. He ought to simply accept my best efforts. But God cannot change his standard. God's standard is perfect. It would be unjust for him to change a perfect standard. And besides that, whose fault is it that you are unable to keep his law perfectly? Is it God's fault? No, it's man's fault. Adam's fault? 
And it's also your fault because you fell in Adam. God cannot accept perfect obedience because, or perfect or imperfect obedience, because imperfect obedience is disobedience. God cannot pretend that disobedience is the same thing as obedience. God cannot pretend that sin is righteousness. And then there's the excuse, ah, but God is merciful. God is merciful. And God will simply forgive my sins because he is too kind to punish me or to punish anyone. God is merciful. What would you say about a judge who was too kind and too nice ever to punish people? He always let people off. Whatever they did, whether it was that they stole or they murdered or they raped, whatever it was, he always simply waved the hand and said, I'm a merciful judge and I'm going to let you off without punishment. He would be outraged at such a so-called merciful judge. Such a judge would not be merciful. He would be unjust. And listen again to Exodus 34, with which we began. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. See, God is merciful. But, he adds this, and that will by no means clear the guilty. He will not clear the guilty. And so the only way in which God can forgive sinners is if at the same time his justice is satisfied. We do not say God is just, but he's also merciful. We don't use the word but. We say God is just and merciful. God is perfectly just and God is perfectly merciful. God is merciful without at the same time denying his justice. And unless you understand that, how his justice and his mercy come together without contradicting one another, you will not be able to understand the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. This is where the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ comes in. God punished his son, Jesus Christ, in the place of sinners 
That's why Jesus came into the world. That's why Jesus went to the cross. He suffered the wrath, the anger, the curse, and the punishment that sinners deserve to bear. God did not ignore his own justice. God, at the same time, displayed his wonderful mercy. He inflicted punishment upon Jesus, who willingly took the place of his people. And Jesus was able to do that. We've seen that in earlier lectures. Because number one, he is the eternal son of God. Therefore, he has the power to endure the eternal and infinite wrath of God. Number two, he is a true man with a real human nature of body and soul, flesh and blood, so that he is able to suffer in the human nature. And number three, he is perfectly righteous, so that he does not have to pay for his own sins, because he has no sins. He is not under God's wrath because of himself. He's under God's wrath because he is a willing substitute. And therefore, he was able to bear in his own body the sins of his people on the cross. Listen again to the word of God. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Galatians 3.13 In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1 verse 7 And for Christ also hath, hath once suffered for sins. The just... He's the just. For the unjust, God's people are the unjust, that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Of course, the objection people would say to that is, but then is God not unjust in punishing his son? How can God punish Jesus for a crime which he did not commit? Well, first of all, Jesus was willing to do that. God did not take Jesus as an unwilling victim and force him to do that against his will. Jesus came into the world willingly to do that, to give his life in the place of his people. And the judge is willing to accept that substitute. No one else could be the substitute. No one else could volunteer to be the substitute. The substitute is a substitute given by God himself, the Son of God coming in our human nature. And that's how God, who is just, is able also to show mercy. 
That's how God, who will by no means clear the guilty, is able to forgive sins. Because there's one who took the punishment upon himself. And that one is Jesus. And so all those who believe in Jesus are forgiven their sins. God does not punish them. And they can stand then before God, the judge, and God will say about them, these people are not guilty. Because although they are by nature guilty, the guilt has been taken by my son, and they are no longer counted as guilty before me. And these people, therefore, do not deserve punishment. Although they do by nature deserve punishment, the punishment has been taken by my son in their place. And these people, therefore, can come to heaven and dwell with me and enjoy everlasting life and taste of my mercy and my grace. And so the call goes to sinners today. Turn from your sins. Do not trust in your own works. Repent and believe in Jesus, who died as a substitute for sinners. And you shall be saved from sin and death. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hope rwc at gmail.com. Thank you.